Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my Corona friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In this episode, Greg and I are inspired by the community support we are witnessing during this time of crisis, and we expand this discussion into the community of science. We drill down into the collaborative method of integrative data analysis in which statistical models are fit to data that have been aggregated across multiple independent samples. We also talk about Quarantude's Day, setting food on fire, when the cops show up, being a supportive spouse, defense mechanisms, psychometric punches in the face, not doing crappy research, sneaking in footnotes, black holes, and storing your children in the garage. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I got a text this morning that made me laugh. It's from my daughter. You know my daughter very well, Sydney. For a later episode, maybe we can tell about the epic practical joke you played on my daughter uh, at some point. But we'll, I think we'll just, she's still mad at me about that. We'll just leave, we'll leave that where it is for right now. She was out interning at Disney World. Is she doing okay? Thank you for asking. She just drove back last night since they closed down Disney World. Uh, she and one of her friends drove back all day from Florida to Maryland. So here they are. So what was the text? She knows that you and I record from time to time. And she sent me a note that said, Happy Quarantudes Day. <laughs> and I thought that was spectacular. In the spirit of our portmanteaus, I, I love that she came up with that. When you and I were trying to come up with a name for this, and I remember exchanging emails and pretty much each name for the podcast was less appropriate than the prior one. <laughs> I had no idea at the time of how flexible quanta would be in terms of portmanteaus. Now, part of why that never occurred to me is I didn't know what a portmanteau <laughs> was until the Tomanus came across my radar. But Quarren Tuesday, the one that I had thought of was Quantantine. Okay. The, but that's not as good as Quarren Tuesday. It just rolls off the tongue better. Yeah. I had kind of a fun thing. I sent you a little video of this, uh, I guess, yesterday or the day before. But you and I both have many years in the martial arts and many years going down 20. I belong to a dojo here in town. And, of course, we can't train. But my sensei had a wonderful idea. I got an email from the dojo and I thought, oh, here's going to be the standard. We're canceling classes. And I was bummed because it, I, I enjoy doing that. And everybody around me enjoys me doing that because it's an outlet for my frustration and annoyance <laughs> to get a punch somebody in the chest. It has a particular cathartic element to it. But... I opened up the email expecting the usual cancellation, and he said, we are going to meet on the local high school football field, and we dressed all out and went out, and we were 25 feet apart doing our training out on a football field, and it was such a wonderful little dose of normalcy. Mm-hmm in just a very weird time of life. There are aspects of hardship that can lead people in different directions. And one of those is innovation, which this sounds like a nice innovative way to try to retain normalcy. 
And the other is just generally the we're all in this together spirit, you know, the the spirit of cooperation, which I think is absolutely lovely. Building a sense of community. And I I even think, honestly, within the, the podcast community that we have, there really is such a nice vibe with people interacting politely, not trying to scorch each other, uh, exchanging humor and some quantitative things. It's written, it's been just really all aspects. Uh, I think we're, we're finding the good in things here. This is the first episode that we've recorded since the Limerick episode was posted. The Limerick episode, we're doing this on Wednesday. It literally was released just yesterday. Mm-hmm. We actually got multiple late Limerick submissions. <laughs> Indeed, a very dear friend of mine submitted an audio limerick. His name is Mick McLean, and he's Mm -hmm. up in New York. And he and I were very, very close friends in grad school, lived together for a couple of years. He taught me that no food is ready to eat until it's caught fire. (laughs) And so... We did a lot of grilling together where he would keep a water spray bottle by the grill to put out the brat fires. And when a ball of flame came out of the grill, it was then time to eat. And so I have many wonderful life lessons from Mick. Ahoy, Patrick and Greg. I have a pirate limerick for you. It's late, but you know how pirates feel about rules. A pirate statistician named J.R. Analyzed using M plus and R. He said there must be better ways than sounding like Patrick's mother all me days. But alas, I don't know what they are. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) It's been great fun with all of the very positive traffic. You know, it's just a wonderful reminder that we are a community and that it's an opportunity to help one another. Right. There's an old saying that, you know, who your real friends are when the cops show up, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of meaning that when things get real and things get stressful, you kind of know who's there for you. And this is that opportunity. And it's not only that opportunity to look around your social group and see who are the ones who are really in this as part of a contributing member of the community. But more importantly, it's your opportunity to be that person. Absolutely. And, you know, whether it's within your family or within your neighborhood or within some broader community, finding ways to be that person under the constraints that we have. It's really good to see the best in people. So before you and I start to tear up and hug, because I'm really (laughs) like moving out onto the thinner part of ice here. Uh Maybe we can steer a little bit away from emotions, which would make me much more comfortable. Okay. Uh And more toward, we thought in the spirit of what's happening now and everything that we just talked about is to talk about the community of science Mm -hmm. and the cooperative nature of science and how do we work in a community cooperative kind of way to build a cumulative knowledge to take what we know now and expand it into ways that we don't know yet. And in that spirit, today's topic is focused on, for lack of a better term, integrative data analysis, Mm -hmm. or IDA. How do we combine multiple existing sources of information in a new and novel way so that we can test hypotheses on the aggregate data Mm -hmm. in a way that couldn't be done in any individually contributing data set. Yeah, I think it's a perfect topic for the situation that we're in. And I 
I will tell you that there have been points throughout certainly my schooling and my early career where I thought of science and academia as uh, as competitive. But but I think at the end of the day, I do view it much more cooperatively and that so much more can be gained by not worrying if someone else is going to scoop you or hiding your ideas from other people. Not that that's something that I would tend to do, but more learning from each other and helping science to move forward en masse. And I think this topic of integrative data analysis is a perfect symbol of community and working together. So I think it's a great idea. Great idea. I have a brief funny story that really shows my own kind of supportive, community-enhancing reaction to a novel idea. Back in the early 2000s, you have pre-kid and Mm post-kid defines a lot of people's (laughs) lives, and ours was Mm pre-kid. My wife is Andrea Hussong, and she's a colleague of mine. We've written together. We met in grad school. A lucky thing we have with North Carolina is we have this amazing coast, right? The Outer Banks and and the beach out there. And so pre-kid, we would go out to the Outer Banks, And spend a week or two out there at the beach and doing work and long walks and fun things like that. But it's about a five-hour drive to get way out there to the farthest point. So we're driving out. She said, let me run an idea by you. Bob's data starts at about age two and goes through about 15. Lori's starts at age 10 and goes up to about age 21. And Kenny's data starts at 18 and goes up to 25. She said, I think we can put those together all in one place where we can have kids from age 2 to 25. And she had this little thing sketched out and and she said, what do you think? And so in the spirit of community and support and mutual admiration, I said, no, you can't. I said, those are different data sets and it has missing data and there are different designs and different sampling. There are different populations. There's different measurement. (laughs) <laughs> nah, you can't do that. <laughs> it's going to be a long week on the Outer I Banks. I like to think of myself as uh-huh. like a devil's advocate, yeah. right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and Andrea, being the lovely woman that she is, mm-hmm. paused and, and said, yeah, I think you're wrong. <laughs> 15 years later, $5 million later, 20 published papers later, mm-hmm. is she was exactly right. And that car conversation, I still envision that car conversation Mm -hmm. as starting at least our own entry, certainly not the fields. This can be traced back decades and decades, but my own entry into integrative data analysis. You know what it is that I think about, Greg, is our approach was almost an engineering problem, Mm -hmm. which is we were presented with something that we wanted to do. That is, how do we combine these three longitudinal data sets in an aggregate to expand the developmental coverage, to expand the measurement coverage, to try to enhance internal validity, try to enhance external validity? How do we do this? Mm -hmm. A lot of what we stumbled through was engineered to address this problem with these data And then we found serendipitously, we wrote almost as many methodological papers in describing the things that we tried to do to get that to work. Yeah, I I could imagine having been in the car and and having had the same reaction as you, right? You've got the one person who's the visionary and the other person who's like, (laughs) 
No, I can tell you 18 things right now that are wrong with, <laughs> wrong with that idea. I only and, came up with 11, okay. so. <laughs> you know, what you described, you described it in a longitudinal context, which I appreciate, but this obviously has broader implications than longitudinal designs. The idea of taking data from a variety of studies and putting them together to get a, a more comprehensive sense of the whole. When I'm sitting there in, in my armchair, identifying all the things that are problematic, I could totally appreciate the engineering problem. And that also makes me greatly appreciate the challenges you faced in, in working through that. So why don't, why don't you drag us down your rabbit hole a little bit more? So like any episode is we didn't get much beyond, hey, we should talk about IDA. <laughs> and then yet we're still going to hit minute 81 with me <laughs> frantically <laughs> waving. <laughs> My kids need the bandwidth for the internet because they have their basket weaving class Uh. that the schools are doing. (laughs) It's like, oh, sure. Wow, at least your schools are organizing around something. What we can do is talk about maybe just a little bit of how we stumbled through it. And then I would like to keep discussion on how can we use this thinking in a way to do things that we're not currently able to, right? That's what I love about science. That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Right, is we're paid to create new knowledge and tell people about it. I mean, what kind of gig is that? It's the best. It is, is the best. Mm-hmm. So here's what we did. So we've got these three studies. Bob Zucker is at the University of Michigan. Lori Chasson was our advisor. She was at Arizona State. Kenny Schur is at University of Missouri. Each of them had independently conducted a multi-year longitudinal study of the intergenerational transmission of risk from alcoholic parents to their offspring. Mm -hmm. So what the goal was is to say, well, all right, what if we could chain these together? So picture in your mind's eye, and I'm going to round off on ages. These aren't the actual ones, Mm -hmm. but just rounding off on ages. Bob's has data on parents and their children, half of whom are alcoholic, the parents and half are not, give or take. And he has, say, from age 5 to 15. All right, so that is a standalone study. Well, Lori started hers with a young age of 11. She has 11 to 15 at time one, but went up into the early 20s. So now stack on top of that, you've got Bob's that are 5 to 15. Lori's are 11 to, say, 21. And Kenny did a college-based cohort study where he got first-year kids at University of Missouri who were, give or take, 18. And he's followed them up to, say, 30. Now, like I said, there's lots of wiggle room in the reality of this. But you have this stacked, or back to the Jenga tower, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is you have 5 to 15, 11 to 21, 18 to, say, 30. But you can start looking at rows and columns as a missing data problem. Mm -hmm. Lori didn't have any 6 or 8 or 10-year-olds in her study because she didn't try to get any. Mm -hmm. But Bob did. And then there's overlap between some of Bob's kids and some of Lori's kids. So this is important in these kind of things, is you need to be able to link these together in some way. So Bob did have 11, 12, 13-year-olds. Lori did have 11, 12, 13-year-olds. So we can tie those together. Kenny didn't have any 11, 12, 13, but who cares? He has 18, 19, 20. Lori has 18, 19, 20. So Lori is kind of the center point Mm -hmm. that ties Bob's and Kenny's together. That was like 15 years of work that we did of trying to say, how can you track trajectories of internalizing and externalizing symptomatology from very young 
five years of age mm. up to age 30. I have three immediate reactions to this. The first one is just the logistical challenges of seeing how these pieces can or cannot fit together. I mean, there's it's actually a puzzle, and it's a puzzle in the sense that if you don't have a way to get everybody linked together, then then someone sort of floats away on their own little broken off ice. And it really is it really is a logic problem. And it's one that I, I happen to have wrestled with in other contexts, but it turns out very, very similar. It's if you had a collection of islands, each of which had physical telephone lines to some but not the others, in the end the question is can you get a message from every island to every other island? That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to see whether or not you can have communication among uh, among all of these sets of data. So first, I see a, a logistical challenge, right? It's, there's, a, there's that problem to wrestle with. The next thing that I see is that it's going to present a lot of interesting statistical issues for sure that, you know, we may not drill all the way down to those here, but they absolutely have to exist, right? Even if this were the first time I'd ever heard of this, sitting in that car, I would have seen the statistical walls that you potentially could be encountering. And then the third thing, in the longitudinal context, as well as in other contexts where you might want to knit data together in the way that you're talking about, there are issues of the construct itself or whatever the constructs are that you care about and whether they are the same in different contexts or the same in different age ranges, however you want to think about it. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the background already based on what you've talked about. It's, it's fascinating. I got to tell you, as if I had a nickel for every time my body generated the sound <laughs> in response to pretty much anything, it's like a defense mechanism for me. It's like our flight leaves at 8.15. No, it doesn't. Uh-huh. It's like, no, look at your ticket, dude. You're holding it. Other parts yeah. of your body will start making that noise as, exactly. you, get, as you get older, of course. Well, yes, exactly. Uh-huh. That's the engineering part mm-hmm. that then... I got really excited about because it's like, well, wait a minute. How do you tie these things together? It's come up before that I have a lot of hobbies, all of which I'm horrible at doing. And I do really, really bad woodworking. And I cut things apart and then I glue them back together and I should not have cut them apart in the first place. I got to tell you, I built a fish tank stand once for my aquarium that you could have rested the shuttle Columbia on top of. Engineering is not one of my longer suits. I think about pounding nails in, right? It's just like, all right, this part of Bob's can mm-hmm. exist on its own, but I've got to drop a couple of nails in to the end of Bob's and the end of Lori's to secure those together. Mm-hmm. And then Lori's middle, that's totally cool. She can be there by herself, but I got to drop a couple nails in that connects her with Kenny's and so on. And again, to go back... None of this is new. End-of-grade testing, IRT folks have been doing this for decades. Mm -hmm. You want to track math ability from first grade to eighth grade. You don't give the same test Mm -hmm. at every year. What you do is you have these traveling panels where some of the items in first grade are also presented at second grade, but then they're all the second grade items, and then some of the second grade are presented at third grade, and that's where you pound the nails in Mm -hmm. to try to get that scaling. We talked about that in the planned missing. Mm -hmm. Imbricate design. The imbricate. I had an opportunity to (laughs) use that. Dang. Oh, man. Sorry, I jumped. You want to go ahead and use it? Go ahead. (laughs) No. (laughs) 
All right, remember, one of the mm-hmm. mottos of Quantitude is you gotta pay the Reaper, mm-hmm. right? Bob was doing his gig at Michigan. Lori was doing her gig in Tempe. Kenny was hanging out in Columbia, Missouri. You can't pool them together and pretend like they're a single sample of kids that you followed for 30 years. It's not fair. Mm -hmm. One of the best parts about statistics is it is inherently fair. So we'll talk in a moment about, well, where do you pay the reaper? But before that, well, what are some of the advantages of doing this, right? So you're sitting at home, you're waiting for the next Quarren Tuesday. I love that. You're hiding from your children. I had a mm-hmm. Zoom call with somebody recently who was in their closet <laughs> trying to hide from their three-year-old. <laughs> Oddly, that was pre-COVID-19. Uh-huh. But, uh, That's right. There are a remarkable number of potential advantages of combining data in this way. Mm-hmm. So some very basic ones that you can think of are it's a very efficient use of existing resources in leveraging data sets that already exist that can be combined in some novel way. You extend age coverage. Bob only had 5 to 15. Lori had 11 to 21. Well, bolt them together, you got 5 to 21. Mm-hmm. Throw Kenny on the pile, you're up to 30, right? So we can accelerate age that we have. A big one, a really big one, is expanding subject heterogeneity, Mm -hmm. racial group membership, gender, rural versus urban. In a single study design, you're limited to the sampling characteristics that brought people to you. And when you start adding a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth, as you're giving greater subject heterogeneity, and that's going to enhance external validity. It feels a little ironic. At first, one of the quickest criticisms you can have is that but these samples are totally different. And the upside of that is, but these samples are totally different. I really like what you're saying, the idea of being able to enhance the generalizability beyond any given study to something much broader. When I first started thinking about this, my thought was the knee-jerk, we need to have the same measures, the same subjects, Mm -hmm. that it's almost like a multi-site kind of thing, right? So there are these very important studies where they're all centrally designed, but they collect data at different sites and then bring it together. I pretty rapidly found myself moving to what you just described, which is, oh, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. We aren't bound by a single six-item measure of depression. We actually have three different scales measuring ostensibly the same underlying construct. Some have the same items, Some have similar items, some have unique items. What initially is like a punch in the face psychometrically of saying, oh my God, how do we handle this is we've expanded our psychometric coverage of the underlying construct. You're exactly Mm -hmm. right. So some other advantages, higher power and precision, right? Mm -hmm. We moved to, I don't remember the exact numbers from our own project that we had, but I think the biggest sample that we had was 400 people, and we were able to move up to 11 or 1,200 people total. So it's increased power. You know, the big one for me that's related to that is it increases cell size coverage of rare behaviors. Mm -hmm. All right, so I study drug use in children and adolescents. I support that young children don't drink. Mm -hmm. As a parent, I don't want young children drinking. From a public health perspective, I don't want any children drinking. From a categorical maximum likelihood adaptive quadrature integration perspective, Would it kill a couple of (laughs) 12-year-olds? 
to just try a couple of beers because I have Other like people's kids. You mean I? I have like three kids in this cell. Combining multiple data files won't change your base rate, right? If you have mm-hmm. a behavior that's a percent, one percent of the sample. If you have similar base rates across the studies, it's still going to be 1%, mm-hmm. but 1% of 100 versus 1% of 1,000 yeah. is going to give you more observed cases and greater stability in your model estimation and inferences. And so I think, yes, 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 power, it's always power. You always have more power, blah, blah, blah. So you move from a frowny face emoji to a, you know, smiley face emoji. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care. What it is more is the stability of model estimation and representation of these high-risk rare behaviors. There, I have so many really positive reactions to this, but I see so much benefit in being able to do this. And it's not just the fact that you're stuck in your home and you want to create a paper based on stuff that's already out there. It's just you could advance your discipline so much by capitalizing on all of these other things. Now, you mentioned earlier about playing devil's advocate. I won't go into full devil's advocate mode, but I will ask you if you could channel the the villainy of reviewer two and imagine that you've created this particular study, you've done one of these IDAs, and you submitted it. What are going to be the big points of pushback that you get from reviewer two or anybody else looking at it? In other words, what are the things that you have had to surmount to be able to convince people that it's good enough? A lot. Mm -hmm. Less so as time has gone by. The early papers were very tough, Mm -hmm. but appropriately so. Right. I used to interact years ago with a group who kept getting their papers rejected and they would go out for drinks and just slam the field because they didn't appreciate mm-hmm. what the work they were doing. And they were so far ahead of the field in pushing the envelope. I'd be nursing a beer and I'd think, well, you could write a better paper. Yeah. <laughs> or it sucks. Uh, here's an idea. <laughs> Don't do crappy research. <laughs> I'm so misunderstood. I, you know, and so we never, we really truly never have that reaction of mm-hmm. it's like, oh, we're so far ahead of the field. They don't appreciate what we're doing here. It was a lot of reaction like my very initial one in the car. It's like, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Come on. At some point, you have to call BS, right? Is you just say, okay, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. It's that kid you, you know, the game you play when you're kids where you scale up the line until somebody calls bullshit. Mm-hmm. And then you you call it, and, and it, I mean it's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And and I do remember never once thinking, oh, you guys are so close minded, or we're so far ahead. But thinking, okay, how are we going to address this concern? How can we bring empirical data to bear to demonstrate that we're not doing irreparable harm to the data by some violation of assumptions or things like that? I gave a talk recently where it was kind of an overview of a lot of IDA. I had it animated, so things were popping up, and I and I intentionally opened the slide with kind of a dry thing as I was like, well, over a 15-year period, we have learned five key lessons. And number one pops up, and it said measurement and scoring. Mm-hmm. That singularly was the most challenging thing. It's an invariance question, like we talked about on a prior episode, yep. is how do we take a discrepant set of items assessed across a discrepant sample of individuals and put them on a shared number line 
where we have confidence that moving a unit is the same for everybody and having some amount is the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so I have that measurement and scoring. And then I said, now I'd like to turn to the other four lessons we've learned. And the second one is measurement and scoring. And the third one is measurement and scoring, as is the fourth and the fifth. Mm -hmm. How do we take these items that were given to different kids at different ages in different settings and try to, in some principled way, bolt them down to a shared number line so that we can get scale scores that we go do something else with. Mm -hmm. We fit a growth model, we fit a logistic regression, whatever it is that we're doing. So that was the biggest issue that we had to deal with. And indeed, talk about necessity being the mother of invention is that's where Bauer came up with moderated nonlinear factor analysis was an engineering solution to this problem. If you're interested in learning more about this, there are lots and lots of resources out there, but Mm -hmm. we did a special issue in Psych Methods in 2009. Mm -hmm. And the whole special issue is dedicated to integrative data analysis. They were foolish enough to put me as the special editor. Am I a special (laughs) editor? Yes, the special issue editor. That's it. Okay, it's a special issue <laughs> editor. Because you have special issues. My main contribution there is I finally was able to write a paper that I used quixotic in uh-huh. the title. <laughs> you you didn't, didn't really matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter. It's like, yeah. I don't even remember Who what cares? the paper was about, but I got to use quixotic in the title. I'm going to tell you my favorite thing. I, I have seen that paper, uh, uh-huh. read it, in fact, and my favorite thing about it is your footnote. Um, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. I do. Well, let's see. Okay. I, I do have a PDF of it over here. Here's your footnote. It says something like, we realize that psychology needs another acronym, like it needs a hole in the head. But we also believe that the set of techniques we explore here is in need of some shared terminology. So that was in your, (laughs) you, you had to put that in, in your, you know, as you labeled this IDA. The best thing about that footnote for me is just the idea that we can do cheeky things like that. So this is this is totally, and people by now know us, we have an unprofessional professionalism about us. I love that. And the first time I ever saw anybody do that, I think it was Singer and Willett or Willett and Singer. I actually don't remember this exactly, but they had what might have actually been a psych bulletin paper at the time before Psych Methods was created. I could be misremembering it. But they acknowledged in their paper a restaurant where they used to go to work on it. I don't know why, but the name The Pepper Pot sticks in my mind. When I saw this footnote, it made me laugh because it, it's such a human <laughs> thing to do. So if I knew nothing else about you but that footnote, uh, I would like you as a result of that. Thank you. But I do have to admit with that footnote, I put it in on the final galleys. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it may not have gone through... Uh-huh. <laughs> the full editorial review. Yeah, in a in a very recent psych methods paper that I had with Tessa Johnson, we snuck in a little Easter egg in that. So for anybody who cares, you can go check that out. <laughs> I hadn't thought about this in a while. Ken Bolin and I wrote a book on latent curve modeling, and when we got the first index, it was like a train wreck. I forget the title of the book now, but it, it's something like latent curve modeling 
a structural equation model perspective, something like that. I should know the name of my own book, but it's something like that. <laughs> we should all have such problems that we don't remember the titles of the books that we've written. We solicited the help of Chris Preacher, who was a postdoc with us at the time, to help us with the index. And one of the things in the original index is it said, in the index, structural equation modeling, page three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, like, the entire textbook is on structural equation modeling. It's on page three. So, if you go to the index, Preacher did this for us, Mm -hmm. is look up latent curve modeling, and it says latent curve modeling, comma, C book. (laughs) That's outstanding. It is called... Yeah, it is called Latent Curve Models, A Structural Equation Perspective, in case you need to know the title of your own book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. All right. We're getting off topic a little bit. (laughs) It's so rare for us. Yeah. What were we talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Oh, so uh, there's this special issue, and there's some really nice papers in it. So Andrea and I try to give an overview. Dan Bauer and Andrea have their first introduction of the moderated nonlinear factor analysis. Scott Hofer and Andrea Pachinin have a really nice piece on what's called coordinated data collection. So it's not combining data, but Scott has done remarkable work on where there's a kind of macro level coordination of multiple labs working on a similar problem where they're doing it in parallel. And that's a really nice piece. Jack McArdle has a great paper where he does some of his work on growth modeling of cognition. And then Harris Cooper and Erica Patal have a final piece on it that I really, really like, which is compare and contrast with meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we're all over hex half acre. Did you see how I didn't use the word hell? Because that, that would be well. inappropriate. Normally it's hell's half acre, uh-huh. but I didn't. Thanks so it's hex back. half acre. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Uh-huh. To maybe jump back half an hour of what we should have done mm-hmm. is how do you embed IDA into a broader quest for a cumulative science? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think about how do we build a science? And I promise you we will do a profanity-laden episode on the reproduce disability crisis, oh. <laughs> right? And the death of psychology. Wow. I have one or two opinions to share about that entire topic. Okay. But, you know, all of this is very timely in terms of, are we a reproducible science? How do we work toward building a reproducible science mm-hmm. and a cumulative science? And if you think about historically, how do we get to where we are? We used to have the single study, and we still do, obviously. We have a single study, so you and I, we get a grant, we gather a sample, we fit some models, and we write a paper, right? So there's a single study. When you and I came up through the ranks in grad school, we had the standard uh, lit review, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes it's called a box score. So you find 18 studies on risk for parental alcoholism and 11 found support and seven did not find support. And so the support wins. (laughs) Yes. Science by show of hands. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there are one or two problems with that. And so you move to meta-analysis. It is an incredibly powerful approach. It picks up. It's almost like a relay race, right? As it takes the baton from the lit review and says, okay, thanks guys for running this leg of the race, but you're not thinking about 38 different important aspects of this that we need to consider. And so meta-analysis then fits 
an analytic framework to the results from each of those studies. Mm -hmm. And that's a gross oversimplification, but that's kind of my middle name. IDA is, I think, a natural extension of the meta-analysis, which is, all right, meta-analysis is evaluating the results of models that have already been fitted to the data Mm -hmm. to try to make some aggregate inference. And IDA is saying, well, what if we have the actual data themselves? Mm-hmm. Harris finishes up that special issue with a very reasoned argument of don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. IDA is a very important augmentation to what we're doing, but that meta-analysis unambiguously still plays a very, very important role. So I, I think you just made a really important point, and it's a point worth pivoting on if you're if you're okay with that meta-analysis is taking stuff that's been done and trying to use the summary statistics to to draw some broader conclusion more powerful conclusion better estimate of effect sizes etc and integrative data analysis tries to do something at least potentially that's related but doing it from the raw data as you just said so the pivot for me is the distinction between studies that have already been done, which is how you described this initially with the three studies that you were splicing together to get a broader developmental picture uh, of intergenerational transmission, to the idea of this being a prospective activity, a planful activity. I may not be very knowledgeable about meta-analysis, but I always think about it as an aggregation of stuff that's already been done. And while IDA can certainly do that, and I I'm envisioning different models for doing that, nailing things together, whether it would be treating it in a, you know, in a multi-level kind of perspective or a fixed effects way of thinking. There are probably a variety of ways to handle that. But the beauty of this is that it can help you to plan to move forward cooperatively. I love that about this, right? Mm. It's not just saying what's already out there and how can we pull it together? It's saying, how can we take this larger idea and maybe coordinate and be planful as we move forward in cooperation. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I think that's the most important direction that we can move next. So I kind of feel like we've almost figured out the majority of issues that arise of putting together three or four or five existing studies. Mm -hmm. I think where we turn next is what you're raising. I think we need to start thinking about every new study we do as a future contributor, either to a meta-analysis or to an IDA or both. Mm -hmm. So what we've done now is kind of serendipity, right? We found it. It's like five-second rule. It's like, oh, look, I found this data file. I picked it up. Quick, use it. (laughs) We actually had a really wonderful five-second rule at home for us, Uh which was not five seconds after it hit the floor. It was five seconds after you found it. And so if you found an M&M under the refrigerator, if you picked it up within five seconds Uh of finding it, that met the five second rule. Sure, even though it has red dye number two from, you know, 1973. um. Well, and the oil that dripped from the compressor on it. That was kind of more my, you know, worry. But there's a five second rule element to 
I know Bob, I know Lori, I know Kenny, I can put these together. But it's not just if we have these five items on every study that sometime later we can put them together. Mm -hmm. And some people are talking about that. NIH has talked about that. We addressed that a little bit in the missing data episode for the planned missingness as kind of thinking in advance. But where I think our field could really advance is to really embrace that is not just to say, oh, NIAAA has these eight items that everybody should use for alcohol use, and I'm going to use those as well. Mm -hmm. But to think more fundamentally about your sampling frame, the targeted population from which you're sampling, the measurement that you're doing, to really think about, yes, you're doing your thing. You're putting in blood and sweat and tears into your study, and you're going to write the fundamental papers that come off of that, but that at the same time, this is a contributing datum to the broader community of science that can be designed in a thoughtful way at the outset that allows us to do things five years from now that we're not able to do now. We need to change our mindset Mm -hmm. about it's not your data. Mm -hmm. right, is you are the guardian of your data in the initial period of the study, but then you're turning it over to the community to use in these ways that we're talking about. And indeed, people are very possessive of their data. And when Mm -hmm. you talk about uh, creating these data repositories for other people to analyze and pull together and all that, there's it's like sounds like a good idea for other people's data, but when you have your own data, and you know that that in and of itself poses logistical challenges, challenges associated with confidentiality and all of that. And all of that said, every one of the problems that you all faced were surmountable to enough of a degree to be able to move that that science forward. I just want to say one of the things that I love about this work that you and Andrea and and colleagues have been doing is that it's not perfect, right? And here's here's what I mean by that. You can sit there and bemoan the fact that there are different contexts for the data sets, that you don't have the same items, that the wording of the items are not exact, that you have to do some version of harmonizing of items. How you know you can drill down to a lot of different problems. You can say, well, that's just insurmountable. Forget about it. Or you can say we're not going to be able to solve this perfectly, but we're going to be able to approach it in a principled way that we think is good enough. And we think the the knowledge that comes out the other side, while imperfect, is better than the knowledge that we have from all of these different isolated studies. So for me, it's actually very motivational, very inspirational that you persist in the face of these imperfections. You say, this is we're not aiming for perfection. We're aiming for this to be good enough to be able to have a more cumulative sense of what's going on. And so I have a lot of admiration for this. And I appreciate that. And that's the fun element. It's ironic that part of my enthusiasm in throwing myself into this was in response to my own raspberry sound. I had such an issue with this when I was a kid is I'd be opening the dishwasher to put away the dishes on my own accord. And my mom would walk through the room and say, oh, yeah, Patrick, I want you to put away the dishes. And I'd slam it shut, stomp downstairs. Because the whole point was I wanted to do it on my own, right? (laughs) The challenge of somebody inferring that you can't do this 
is the very thing that makes me want to do mm-hmm. it, which is fun. <laughs> but you're raising an incredibly good point, which is, no, we didn't follow the same kid from age 2 to 30 with the same items assessed every year. But by combining the data in these ways, there are two things that I think are incredibly important that come from this is one do we know more than we knew beforehand right yes we're making these assumptions some are testable some are untestable some you might even kind of cringe and say yeah i don't know about that Mm -hmm. even with those assumptions are we able to have an insight into the problem that we don't have otherwise and related to that, and I think this is singularly the most important thing that can come out of an IDA, are we able to empirically evaluate a hypothesis in a way in the integrated data that is not possible in any contributing study? Mm-hmm. So that the aggregate really is more than just a sum of the parts, right? If we have 200 subjects and 200 subjects and 200 subjects in three different studies, and they're all exactly the same, and we combine them, and we now have 600 subjects, it's like, all right, one over the square root of n, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yep. It's like, yeah, no, we know this. Standard errors are going to go down. boy. Mm-hmm. you know, well done. <laughs> but if you say the 200, 200, and 200, and when we put them together, we can test this cohort hypothesis in the aggregate that is not even logically possible to talk about in any individual one. Now we're off to the races. You know, if I were someone listening to this, and this is my first exposure to IDA, I would want to know a variety of things. One is, how do I learn more about that as an applied user? Not as someone who is super skilled in psychometrics, but someone who wants to get more into this. I know you mentioned the special issue that you were the special editor of, but can you tell us about what kinds of things are out there to help people get into this, whether it's retrospectively you know, pulling things together or prospectively planning for those kinds of things? Yeah, Andrea's put together a really nice web page that organizes a lot of those resources. So if you go to idaunc.web.unc.edu, so that's UNC as in University of North Carolina, idaunc.web.unc.edu. She has a really nice collection of a variety of things. There's an overview of what is IDA. There's a list of the publications from our own group. There's also a list of publications from other people who are doing similar kind of things in the field. And then there's a link to a really nice video she did as part of a flipped lecture in talking about what is IDA, how do you do it, and giving an example of it. So that may be a reasonably good starting place if you're interested in learning more. Dan and I have puzzled through the possibility of doing a workshop Mm -hmm. on IDA. And about every year or two, we go out for lunch and we say, you know, we should really do a a (laughs) workshop on IDA. And then every time we decide not to, And the reason is every application is so unique Mm -hmm. that it's really hard to present a corpus of material that applies to the majority of the people of the room most of the time. Yeah. Right? Because so much of it is an engineering kind of problem. I had an embarrassing kind of thing where I went up to NIH to give a morning workshop on IDA and then meet with PIs in the afternoon. 
and I did a three-hour workshop on moderated nonlinear factor analysis and item selection and variant scoring, EAPs versus MAPs and factor scores and all this. We had lunch and then we came back and I said, all right, why don't each of you go around and tell me about the scales that you're working with? And the first person said, we have number of seconds to complete trails B, which is a cognitive task. Mm -hmm. And the second person said, me too. And the third person (laughs) said, me too. And so I was like, I just kind of rubbed my forehead because for three hours I had talked about (laughs) something they have no use for. No use for. (laughs) One outcome measure. All right. I'm imagining the number of seconds required to complete trails B is invariant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has metric invariance. Yeah. It has scalar Are you guys using invariance. the same seconds as they're using? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, unless one of you is somehow closer to a black hole mm-hmm. that, you know, but even that we could incorporate into the we measurement can, we model. We can model that. It's, like, <laughs> it's hard to have a corpus sure. of shared material. And we try to balance that these kinds of analyses and and models are totally doable, Mm -hmm. right? These are are practical, they're tractable, they're solvable. They're not super easy. There are a lot of things that you need to deal with. None of them are like keeper of the flame is that you need to come and talk to, you know, one of the high priestesses who's going to tell you how to do it. But at the same time... You can't just put the items together and take a mean and assume that that's okay. You need to do some of this measurement invariance. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot with that, but I would really like folks who are thinking, oh my gosh, this would be such a helpful thing to be able to pull stuff together. I'd like them to have some sense of where to go for that and and the extent to which it's currently software supported. But you know, my, my guess is that there really is such a unique aspect to every single project. You and I have taught a lot of workshops. I think I'm getting close to 300, between 200 and 300 on the upper end of the 200s in terms of the numbers of workshops I've done. And, and of course, the participants always want to know, and this is why they're there, how, how what you're teaching them applies to their data, their research questions. And there's always that, but in my data, but in my variables, but, but, and I can hear a whole lot of echoes of but, but in an IDA workshop or in an IDA framework, right? Because the situations really are are unique in, in every single mm-hmm. case. But but there still are guiding principles about how to approach measurement aspects, how to approach sampling issues, how to approach um, the different contextual elements that distinguish the samples that, that you're comparing. So I, I think it's really exciting and really symbolic of this notion of the community of science. Exactly. And I would encourage people that if you do go for a run or a walk, I mean, getting outside is a good thing as long as we keep our social distancing. (laughs) Or if you're in the back of a closet hiding from a three-year-old, which undoubtedly somebody is at this very moment, my charge to you would be think creatively about who are you colleagues? Who do you know? Who works on similar kinds of things that you're working on? There's a huge 
increase in the availability of high-quality public access data set. ICPSR at the University of Michigan Mm -hmm. maintains it may be the world's largest collection of data. You can go and you can search data files for constructs, for variables, for scales. And just think about, I don't need to code up a Qualtrics or use MTurk or go door-to-door to do some really important, meaningful research using existing resources. We could talk a whole nother episode about what are kind of exciting future directions to go. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think has a lot of promise, and I've written a little about this, but I haven't done it. This was actually goes back to an early idea Andrea had mm-hmm. that after she described it, I said, you can't mm-hmm. do that. <laughs> But it's called a bridging study. So Mm -hmm. imagine you have three or four existing studies that are similar in sampling design, similar in questions, similar in measurement, but you don't have those overlapping boards Mm -hmm. to pound a nail into. Well, you can do a novel data collection for a whole new sample, maybe a Qualtrics, maybe a whatever, you Mm -hmm. know, think about a subject pool, think about an MTurk thing. There are lots of ways of doing this without a multi-million dollar grant. But you design it in a way where the bridging study people get little bits of items from each of the four, Mm -hmm. and that becomes a board that goes underneath those four studies, and you pound nails in to tie them together. Think creatively. Think about, oh, wow. Okay, I've got these three studies, but I could do a Qualtrics online data Mm -hmm. collection to give me those overlapping board bits that I can pound a nail into and move forward with what I want to do. That sounds just brilliant, right? Because you can identify precisely what are the places where you need nails, how much data you need to be able to knit all this together and to be able to make conclusions that help to identify interesting contextual elements. And if I were a funding agent, that would sound incredibly attractive because you're not just leveraging whatever you can learn from the sample you're gathering. You're saying, and this is going to enable me to make conclusions much, much more broadly. So I, that is a great idea. And then in that terms of thinking creatively, you know, we're so pistol whipped into how we do science, right? Mm-hmm. As you have the questionnaire and you sample and you give and you reassess. Think about, is there somebody in your building who's doing an fMRI study? High cost, high involvement, smaller sample, Can you take them out to lunch and give them a questionnaire that they would give to their people who they're putting into the scanner? You give your questionnaire to a a larger matched sample, and you can do an IDA to make some leveraged insight into linking psychosocial kind of measures with fMRI when you only have an fMRI on the subset of the individuals. Now, it unambiguously is not as if you put 500 people in a scanner, (laughs) if you only put 50 people in a scanner. But is it better than not having it at all? That's equally unambiguously so. Totally. And it ties to things that we talked about in the planned missing data designs, right? With the two method measurement designs, all of those principles come together here. It's really incredibly powerful. And fun. This is where the fun comes from. That's our charge to you is this week, 
Think about what do you have available to you? Who are you colleagues with? Who are your friends with? Who's down the hall? I think that there are remarkable opportunities where we can go wander around the backyard and pick up a brick here and pick up a brick there and kind of lug them back to the house and build something new. That's a great way to think about it. What do other people have that I don't have? What do I have that they don't have? And how can we come together to build something that's... um, that's greater than just the parts. And you know what I have that I plan on doing uh, <laughs> after we're done here <laughs> are three of the most disgusting overripe <laughs> bananas that you have seen in your life. <laughs> Folks, if you're at home, Enjoy. I got to tell you, <laughs> banana bread not mm. only is a good use of disgusting <laughs> fruit fly <laughs> Were these behind the refrigerator? (laughs) So, five-second rule, I found them. Yes, I'm able to cross, yeah, a five-second rule on an overripe banana, but I think we're going to have banana bread. All right, good news. So what is life looking like for you? You're at home with the kids. You got the boys. Is Sid with you? Sydney just got back last night. We will be... Spending some time with our high-risk child who worked at Disney World. (laughs) So is she in the garage? (laughs) Yeah, we're we're throwing stuff in there. Here's a roll of toilet paper. You'll you'll, you'll be fine. (laughs) No, well, I think what we've learned here is that if you don't feed your children, then they don't use as much toilet paper, and it's a win-win. Just my parenting tip. That's so <laughs> you get everything here at Quantitude. Parenting tip number three. Yeah. The less food that goes in them is the less <laughs> food that comes out of them. Maybe on a more serious note, I would say I, you know, what we started off with is that I'm incredibly grateful for this community that we have that, you know, all these people coming together from a variety of disciplines that share their time with us each week and that work on interesting problems and really that just treat each other in such a lovely way on Twitter. And we just wish everybody all the best as we go through this. And we will get to the other side of it. We will. In our legion of quanta twits. (laughs) It is wonderful in the communication. And part of the charge that you could do in the upcoming week is if you have access to a data file and you are working on a particular thing, but you're looking maybe for somebody else who is doing something similar is, you know, post a message and say you're, you know, looking at school achievement and the relation with anxiety and you have a data file you're working with. Is anybody else working on this kind of problem? Absolutely. That sounds like a great idea to continue building community and moving science forward. Stay safe, stay healthy, keep quantitating. (laughs) You're really pushing it. (laughs) All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey, Cubotters. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they prefer to get their pandemic-friendly podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, where you can leave us a text or voice message. You've been listening to Quantitude, proof of the dangers of growing up watching four to six hours of TV per day. Today's episode has been sponsored by 18-year-old psychology undergrads who have nearly single-handedly provided the foundation for an entire discipline. Thank you for your coerced service. And by Model Overfitting, because it's totally meaningful to know how well that right-handed batter hits against a left-handed pitcher when there are two outs, runners on first and third base, 
in an outdoor stadium at night when it's under 50 degrees on a Wednesday. And by Costco toilet tissue, the real paper currency of the new world order. This is most definitely not NPR.